Hi, and welcome to Office Hours, the podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary and face-to-face with our faculty. I'm Scott Clark. Today, I'm talking with Julius Kim, Associate Professor of Practical Theology and Dean of Students at Westminster Seminary, California. Julius is author of Religion of Reason and the Reason for Religion, John Tillotson and the Latitudinarian Defense of Christianity, 1630 to 1694, and a contributor to Covenant Justification and Pastoral Ministry, Essays by the Faculty of Westminster Seminary, California, and a contributor to Heralds of the King, Sermons in the Legacy of Edmund P. Clowney. These last two titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, that's wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Julius, and welcome to Office Hours. Hello, Scott. Thank you for for this opportunity. Well, welcome back. You have been away f- from us for a while. Tell us, first of all, where you've been and, and what you've been doing. Sure. Uh, after eight wonderful years here at Westminster, uh, God gave me the opportunity to spend uh, some time in Korea. So the last 10 months... I've been in Korea half of the time on a study leave, doing some research and study, but also spending some time developing relationships and getting to know the Korean church better and how we can partner with the Korean church for the sake of Reformed Christianity. What uh, What do you think was the biggest uh, shock, uh, unexpected experience in your in your time, I, I, you're not a stranger to, uh, sure. to South Korea. You, you've lived there, but this is a, a, an extended time there as an adult. I think the biggest shock for me was how incredibly fast the nation has grown, not only in terms of its economics, but in terms of its its religiosity, for lack of better words. I mean, we've all read and heard about the the explosion of Protestant Christianity in Korea, but I did not expect it to be this expansive and this this large to the scale that I saw when I was visiting there uh, it's an it's an incredible it's an incredible country Scott in many ways what what was the clue what signaled to you that that things have changed well for example um, in terms of a, of a country I mean 50 years ago it went through a a complete for a lack of better words civil war where millions of Koreans were killed as brothers fought brothers over certain political ideologies. Uh, and it's an amazing, it, it's been amazing to see the progress of a nation uh, industrially, economically, politically, in so many ways. The, 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 the capital city, for example, is an incredible city that's just bustling with so many people, with modern technology everywhere. I, I was amazed to, to see and experience uh, the growth of the internet. The internet there is, is I think, more expansive than here in the United States. Cell phones are about two years more advanced. Uh, you can use wireless and cell phones five feet under the earth in all the subways. They've actually wired all the subway systems. It's an amazing uh, sight to behold. So you you saw the future a little bit for, for North America. I think so, yeah. But I also got a chance to see the, the, the explosive growth of Protestant Christianity in Korea. For example, I preached at a church... Uh, in in Korea, where it, on a given weekend, will have 30,000 people come to worship Mm. in close to eight different services. That's 30,000 people. That's the size of some of our Reformed denominations. Well, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And yet it's one church, one conservative Presbyterian church has that many people. And it's a 24-7 operation. It's it's almost a little bustling city. 
They've got a publishing wing. They've got a television wing, a radio wing. In addition to all the different children's programs, adult programs, senior citizen programs throughout the week, uh, they have three morning services every day, uh, starting at like I think five in the morning, then six thirty, then eight o'clock in the morning, and mm. then evening services. It's an incredible sight to behold. You've already anticipated anticipated uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask, and that is, what is the state? of Reformed and Presbyterian Christianity in South Korea? That's, that's a difficult question to answer in a short interview, and, and yet I think I can say this. On the one hand, Protestant Christianity has grown and developed to the point where perhaps one in four, that is one person in four, is a Protestant Christian in Korea. That's an astounding number, given the fact that Christianity has only been in Korea for about 100 years. In fact, in 2007, they celebrated their 100-year anniversary as a Protestant, uh, as a Protestant church, and so you would expect it uh, to for for its size and for the the kind of resources and the and the tremendous amount of missions and evangelism that the Korean Church does, you would expect it to be how shall I say more mature perhaps in their faith. One thing that I've been somewhat burdened by, and uh, I think burdened by is the best word is uh, perhaps the lack of kind of solid reform theological um, insight and introspection, perhaps. That's probably not the best way to say it, but uh, especially for the reformed churches, I expected them to be, how shall I say, more reformed in their identity as well as their practice. Mm. Uh, But surprisingly, they were not. And and why do you think that is? A variety of factors. It's, It's, again, very complex it's very different from the uh, Reformed Church here in America, but um, I think it's because of its history, because of the influence of shamanism and Confucianism upon the Korean worldview, and how that impacts then their understanding of Christian sensibilities. And so uh, much of Korean Christianity is, I, I hate to say this, but quite syncretistic. Hmm. Um, uh, and so as a result, they still struggle with, I think, clearly understanding the gospel. Are there people in the Korean church situation uh, who see it the same way you do, who, who've diagnosed the problem as you have, and, and what do they say? Sure, there are. They're a minority, uh, but they're an emerging group of younger pastors who are starting to read outside of their own uh, circles and are discovering that, and as they read the tradition, for example, and start reading the confessions, they're, they're beginning to notice that, hey, something doesn't match here with the way Protestant Christianity has been for the last 2,000 years, the way our confessions speak about the church and how we are to do church, and what we're doing. There's an inconsistency there. And so they're starting to write more. Uh, They're starting to look outside for different writers and thinkers who are helping them. And so, in fact, I was quite encouraged to note that uh, there's a particular publisher uh, who's associated with a church there that is quite uh, interested in what Michael Horton is recently mm. writing about crisis Christianity. And um, it's already been translated into Korean. That's exciting. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite fast, and um, it's making quite a wave. And uh, some of the pastors that I spoke to uh, said that's exactly the problem of Korea right now. It's a crisis Christianity. Interesting. Well, that, that's fascinating. And, uh, and it gives us an opportunity to back up uh, a, a little bit um, and to fill in the picture uh, a, a little bit. This is not your first uh, trip to Korea. No. I lived in Korea until I was about 11 years old. I uh, lived there and went to school there. 
Uh, but I went back in 88 during the Summer Olympics. I worked for the U.S. Olympic Committee uh, for the Summer Olympics in Seoul. So I had that opportunity to experience that. And then um, I've gone back over the years to visit on one week or two week kind of trips. Uh, but nothing like this in terms of an extended time in Korea. How do you think this trip affected you? What, what changes do you see in yourself as a consequence of, of this visit? Sure, that's a great question. I've been thinking about that since I've returned uh, from Korea for the last two weeks. I think in some ways it's expanded my understanding and vision of what global Christianity is. Hmm. Um, I think being here in North America, and not just in North America, but North American, let's just say, Protestant Reformed Evangelicalism, and then being at a seminary in the West Coast, I think sometimes I can get a little, how how shall I say, narrow-minded or narrow-focused on what Christianity is and what it should be. Now having been outside of this context and and having worshipped and lived and breathed with other Christians in a totally different culture, in a different setting, and also having spent one week in China with the underground church there, Mm. I I was able to to teach uh, for one week at an underground reform seminary. And these experiences tremendously influence the way I think about what God is doing in the world, that God is doing amazing things throughout the world. And I think we have a wonderful opportunity and a privilege as, as a seminary to partner with Christians around the world for the sake of the gospel. This must have been a great opportunity for your children to connect with their heritage uh, and to see a world uh, beyond that which they probably knew prior. That's right. And, and I think that's one of the main reasons why we decided to stay so long in Korea. Originally, I decided just to stay one semester. Mm-hmm. But then knowing that I was going to go with my family and my two, two young girls, we thought perhaps there would not be another opportunity like this uh, to live for almost one year in a different country, in a different culture, but not just a different country and culture, but the actual country and culture from which our parents immigrated. Mm. And so it was an opportunity for my children, who are third-generation Korean-American, to understand what it means for the first half of that hyphenation. That is, what does it mean to be a Korean? Mm. And, and what is Korea like? And yes, they had some challenges. They had some difficulties, of course, because they didn't understand the language and they don't understand the culture. And yet, I think it really stretched them. They have, I think they've come away with a, a new appreciation for a different culture, for a different history, for a different people group. And, and the uh, ease with which one can find a McDonald's. That's right, that's right. <laughs> you know, for, for good or for ill, um, there are many treat comforts in Korea, and so around every corner there's a Starbucks, and around every corner there's a, the ubiquitous McDonald's. Exactly. Yes. Well, hey, just having come back from my own trip, uh, I will not apologize for looking for a McDonald's. <laughs> Obviously, you've always been Korean, but you haven't always been Reformed. That's true. How, that's how true. did you become Reformed? And, and t- so tell us that story. Uh, the, the simple answer is by God's grace, but the more complicated answer perhaps or the more drawn-out answer is uh, really through the influence of several important people in my life. Um, at, when I went to college, I actually went to an Assemblies of God college, a Pentecostal school, through the influence of, of my pastor at the time. Um, I was attending a, a broadly evangelical Korean-American church in Orange County, and my pastor at the time, my youth pastor at the time, encouraged me to consider full-time ministry. Not knowing anything about full-time ministry, uh, he encouraged me to go to a Bible college. And I wanted to stay near home, and the nearest Bible college to my home was this Pentecostal Assemblies of God school. And it was there that a particular professor somewhat mentored me, and it was, he, was a, 
he was Dutch Reformed. Can you say who it was? His name was Ronald Wright, okay. Professor Ron, the late Ronald Wright, uh, a great man, uh, born and born and raised in South Africa, born and raised in the Dutch Reformed Church, but toward the end of his life uh, became Pentecostal, hmm. and yet was Calvinistic soteriologically. Well, yes and no. He he was a four point Calvinist. Okay, he wasn't convinced of limited atonement, but he introduced me to Calvinism, and I think that was one of the first times that I was able to uh, study and understand Calvinism, that is soteriological Calvinism, for the first time. So he was the one that really interested me in Calvinism uh, as, as, uh, as a way of thinking about uh, salvation and the Bible, etc. By the time I had graduated, I knew I had to go to seminary. And, um, and many of the, of the graduates there either went to the Denominational Assemblies of God Seminary in Missouri or went to Fuller. And so I naturally expected my mentor, uh, Dr. Wright, to encourage me to go to Fuller and write a recommendation, et cetera. But he surprised me. He actually said, no, Julius, I think you should go to Westminster. Hmm. And my immediate response was, oh, you've got to be kidding me. You mean where all those stuffy Presbyterians go? I don't think they even believe in the Trinity. Surely they don't believe in the third person of the Trinity, that is the Holy Spirit. And he said, well, you know what, Julius? You may not agree with everything, but one thing they will teach you is they will teach you the Bible. Hmm. And as a minister of the gospel, you need to know the Bible. And I was quite shocked and yet intrigued at the same time. So I knew I had to discover some more. So I, I, I went down to Westminster, got the requisite materials, and met with some of the professors, and actually met with Dr. Godfrey, who at that time was not president, was just professor of church history. He happened to be the only professor that was around at that summer. So I, I met with him in, in a somewhat cocky, proud way. I said, why should I come to Westminster? And he basically said the same thing. It was because though you may not agree with everything, we'll be fair and we'll train you as to be an expert in the Bible. Hmm. And I thought, that sounds right. Something about that struck a chord in my heart. And so then I went back home, prayed about it, thought about it, and then talked to others, including my, <clears throat> at that time it was my girlfriend's brother-in-law, his name is James Kim, who at that time was a student at Westminster, or oh. he had just graduated from Westminster. Oh, interesting. And so James Kim, my, who, would be, who would be my future brother-in-law, encouraged me to go to Westminster. And so uh, it all kind of worked together uh, to come. And originally, I did not want to come. I applied to Gordon-Conwell and to Westminster, and I was going to go to Gordon-Conwell. Hmm. This is a long story. I, I apologize for this. The summer before seminary began, and I was going to go to seminary, my wife and I got married. Or my, my fiance and I got married. And at that time, both my parents and her parents encouraged us by saying, instead of going to Boston for your first year of marriage, why don't you stay closer to home? Both of our parents are here in Orange County, uh, Southern California. Because the first year of marriage can be quite difficult and challenging, though it could be very fun. Not and with you, you Julius. Of course not. <laughs> but uh, they said, you know, you need to have a good support system, a good church, your family around, and I think it's important. So just go to Westminster for one year. And then transfer to Gordon-Conwell. And we thought that that was wise. So originally, we came to Westminster just as a kind of stopgap, a kind of general ed place. Just I'll just do my Greek, some Hebrew, some general theology classes, then I'll transfer to Gordon-Conwell. And so we moved down to Escondido, not, not Reformed at all, maybe, maybe somewhat Calvinistic in my soteriology, and started taking classes here. And, and Scott, I was completely blown Away. Why? Why was that? What? What in particular? As a biblical studies major, as a as a pre seminary major in college, I thought I really didn't need seminary, frankly. And I came. I thought I thought I knew my Bible. I thought I knew my theology. 
I thought I knew my history. I thought I knew ministry. And then I came here and I started taking classes with Ed Clowney, uh, Meredith Klein, John Frame, and others. And they completely blew me away. They opened up scriptures to me in a way that I'd never seen before. Hmm. I basically got introduced to covenant theology, to reform theology, and the way of reading the Bible uh, through the covenant. And I had never seen the Bible in that way before, so I just ate it up. Hmm. I felt like I was a, a kid all over again, learning from the very beginning what Christianity is all about. And I think it was at that time, Scott, that I understood the gospel. Well, not for the first time, but I think understood the gospel in a tr- profound way. And it was so liberating. Maybe with greater clarity. I and, think that's the best way. Yeah. Greater clarity, greater insight. And not just for my mind, but for my heart. Hmm. Uh, because I knew that I was free because of the gospel, because of justification. That I didn't have to work so hard to be a Christian. I didn't have to feel so bad all the time when I sinned. Yeah. And repent all over again. And not, not nothing wrong with repenting and feeling bad. Those are well, yeah, we believe course, in that. Yeah, those <laughs> are Cal- godly things. We, we're Calvinists. We believe in that's guilt. That's right. I mean, <laughs> the freedom that the doctrine of justification brings. Yeah. And it was so liberating. And then seeing Christ through the Old Testament and being able to proclaim that and know it yeah. uh, was such a profound thing for me. So I'm indebted, indebted tremendously to my education at Westminster. And it liberated you. To, to live the Christian life, right? That's right, I mean, exactly. To you, now you're free to, to want to, to serve God, to That's die right. to self, and, and That's to, right. to live for Christ. As you're, so you're finishing your, your first year of seminary, mm-hmm. and you've heard these lectures, you've been to chapel, uh, the scriptures have been opened up for you in a way that you really didn't expect, and now you have a decision to make. Mm-hmm. How did that go? It was actually quite difficult, because I, I honestly thought my wife had her heart set on going to the East Coast. Both my wife and I were born in, not born, but I I was born in Southern California. She was raised in Southern California, having been born in Korea. We we thought going to the East Coast, especially a city like Boston, was so novel and romantic. And so I thought it would be disappointing to her if I were to come to her and say, honey, I don't want to go to Boston. I want to stay here. And so I prayed, and and over dinner one night uh, during my second semester, here of my first year, I, I, you know, of course, my wife was asking me, you know, how was school? What, what did you learn today? As, as was, was the question every evening, and um, <clears throat> I started sharing with her what I was learning, especially in Pentateuch. I, I still remember my second semester, taking Pentateuch with Dr. Clown and how blown away I was, and sharing how excited I was about learning all these new things. And she just turned to me, and without me saying a word, she said, "We're not going to Boston, are we?" I said. Honey, I don't want to. She goes, I knew that all along. She goes, I have actually not seen you this excited about what you were learning. And, and as a wife, that excites me to see, you, see this kind of passion hmm. and excitement for the things of God. I would be a horrible wife if I didn't support that. Yeah. And so we're staying here, aren't we? I said, is that okay? She said, of course. And so actually during the second year, we prayed some more. And lo and behold, my wife decided hey, wait a minute, I want to learn this stuff too. So by God's grace and through the help of her parents who supported us financially, she actually joined me and uh, enrolled in the MA program. And three years later, we both graduated from Westminster, her with her MA and me with my MDiv. So you're, uh, you're, you're both products of Westminster That's Center right. in California. That's right, very grateful for it. Uh, and what happened after you, after you graduated? Um, well, after we graduated, well, prior to graduating, we had, we had sincerely prayed and thought that the Lord was calling us to foreign missions. Uh, 
Um, and so we started preparing our hearts and our minds for that. We actually went on a short-term trip to Indonesia to visit one of the missionaries that we were supporting at our PCA church and <clears throat> perhaps thought that we could do, be a part of that ministry or perhaps be a part of a ministry somewhere in Asia for the sake of the Chinese church. That, that what seemingly was what God was calling us to. But then several of my professors uh, pulled me aside my senior year and encouraged me to consider further studies. Mm. Uh, Ed Clowney and Bob Godfrey, two in particular, um, at that time and said, you know, Julius, you're still a young man. Would you, you ought to consider uh, getting further training, especially if you're going to go overseas, because overseas, you're not just going to plant churches and disciple people, but you're going to actually train future leaders. And if you do so, you need further training. And so at least think about a THM or get a PhD. And to be honest, that was a last thing on my mind. Hmm. The MDiv was tough. Uh, it's not an easy program. And you were busy while you were here too, right? That, you you weren't just studying. You you developed a, a quite an active, uh, I don't, not business, I, I don't want to say, but um, <laughs> commitment to, for example, organizing conferences and things. That's right. Yeah, I, I, perhaps I took, I took a, a bit off more than I can chew, but... You know, I was I was heavily involved with the student government here, and we we uh, did some conferences here, and I was also heavily involved with my Korean American church up in L.A. So every weekend, I'm preaching, teaching, discipling, counseling, uh, preaching every Sunday, and and really serving as a full time pastor to the English speaking congregation at my PCA church. And so yes, it was quite busy. So having all of that made my studies very difficult. So the last thing I thought I could do was more studies, but um, on the encouragement of my two professors, uh, Dr. And Dr. Clowney and Dr. Godfrey, uh, I decided to pray and, 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 and see what the Lord had in store for me. So I applied to some graduate schools, and they encouraged me to go into the church history field, but kind of church history with a, a bent toward the history of preaching and, and practical theology. So I applied to some schools, and I, I got into a few programs, and so I decided to go get a Ph.D. in church history. And you uh, you went to uh, Trinity. That's right, Trinity in Chicago, and I studied with John Woodbridge, who was a historian. And you worked on a topic that might not be familiar to all of, of our <laughs> listeners, but a topic that is uh, probably a lot more relevant than a lot of people imagine. Yeah, I actually worked on the broader question of what is the Enlightenment or what are the sources of the Enlightenment, I was taking a, a doctoral seminar with Dr. Woodbridge, and he's an expert on the Enlightenment, specifically the French Enlightenment period. And so during the seminar, we were exploring different sources of the Enlightenment as it, as it expressed itself in different countries. And while we were in England and, and talking about uh, Enlightenment ideals and proto-Enlightenment thinking, we came across a group of Anglican theologians and ministers called the Latitudinarians uh, during the Restoration period, who many see as... The, the, the precursors or the seedbed of full-blown enlightenment of the 18th century. And so they intrigued me. And so I did some further reading and research and discovered there was not much written about them. Mm. And so I decided to do some further reading and research on the Latitudinarians and discovered a, a fascinating group of ministers slash scholars slash politicians, because you know at, at, during that time they did it all, uh, who... I think for good motives, they really wanted to create a stable society and a more rational religion so that we didn't have wars of religion anymore in England. And so they didn't want the, 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 the extra or the extreme doctrinaire position of the Puritans, or they didn't want the, the, the speculative thinking of the high Anglicans like the metaphysical preachers and thinkers, nor did they, of course, didn't want the Roman Catholic 
Roman Catholics to come back to power for England. So they established a kind of new Christianity, a new way of doing religion, a new way of even running the country. And, and their enemies called it Latitudinarianism uh, because they were men of latitude. They, they wanted to bring everything down to a kind of civil, rational religion, a moral and civil society where no one fought anymore. Hmm. So let's narrow everything down and reduce everything to some common denominators that all of us could agree upon. So let's not talk about election and predestination. No one's going to believe in those metaphysical ideas. Let's just believe in what's, what's good, what's moral, what's civil, and what's understandable rationally. Hmm. And let's create a religion based on those principles and establish a society based on those principles. And what began as a small group eventually uh, basically dominated uh, the Anglican Church to the point where uh, the person that I studied, uh, Archbishop John Tillotson, became the the most important uh, minister uh, in the Church of England. He became the Archbishop of England, Archbishop of Canterbury in 16, uh, 1690 under the under the uh, power of uh, William of Orange and William William and Mary, hmm. who came to the throne in in sixteen eighty eight. So, did latitudinarianism just disappear, or where did it go, and and how is it relevant to what's happening in the church? Sure, now? sure. Latitudinarianism basically then spawned the next generation of Anglican ministers who basically became deists. Hmm. And it's not, not too difficult to see that progression. Once you start believing in a God that's not really involved intimately in the affairs of man, but yet somehow he's created us as good, rational, moral creatures, and then leaves us to ourselves to create that religion and that way of life, the next generation ultimately is not going to believe in a God that's involved in the affairs of man. Yes, he's out there, far and removed, he's transcendent, but he's not imminent through the work of Jesus. So Jesus no longer becomes, how shall I say, necessary for our Christianity, frankly. Certainly not at the center. Yeah. I mean, he's important, of course, for our salvation. But, you know, once Jesus, is, once Jesus helps us become saved, it's really up to us to, to, to be more civil and rational and moral. And so what you have then is a, a very moral religion, but a very deist religion in England. And you've set up a principle that, in effect, denudes Christianity of all of its distinctives. It, you, know, uh, what, you know, when one reads Paul in 1 Corinthians, one doesn't get the sense that he was passionately committed to a, a sweetly reasonable Christianity, <laughs> right? I mean, he, he's committed to the foolishness of preaching. That's and, right. And, uh, and the Latitudinarians are... are Certainly not committed to uh, to that to, to that kind of foolishness in that way. That's right. Uh, and whether for good or for ill, what it, what it produced was a kind of preaching, especially, and that's where most of my research has been. Is is you notice the pattern of preaching that develops as a result of the Latitudinarians is a is a very moral moralistic preaching because that's really what they wanted to endorse a moral civil religion. And, and I think that's something that, that has tremendous uh, value for us today, to carefully think through what, what is going to motivate our preaching. Is it this desire for political stability or moral clarity or moral, a moral life uh, for a better America? Don't get me wrong, those are good things. But is it based upon what Christ has done for us on the cross and the kingdom that he brings to us? Hmm. Or is it based on trying to establish a moral religion that's not Catholic and not doctrinal, for example? 
And uh, so it really is, really, for, a lack, for a lack of better words, it's really a Christless Christianity. Mm. It's a moral Christianity. And I, I think that's something that we can really think about as we reflect upon our own churches here, in, not only in North America, but in places like Korea as well. So your research really does color your, your teaching. It, it, uh, it uh, influences the way you look at your, at your primary vocation here at the seminary, which is to teach uh, young men uh, how to stand in a pulpit and preach the Word of God. Absolutely. I have been so thankful for this opportunity to reflect upon these things, because as I, as I get the opportunity and privilege to teach young men uh, to be ministers of the Word of God, uh, it's, it's so important they understand the central message of the Bible. What is it that God wants them to share? It's Christ and Christ alone in all of His fullness as displayed in all the pages of Scripture. And I think that's the only message for the world today. Uh, it's Christ, uh, his gospel. And so, yes, uh, I've been thankful for the opportunity to do that. As you and I sit here now, it's summer 2009, and it's I don't know when this uh, interview will be broadcast, uh, but you have uh, an interesting and uh, an important opportunity uh, coming up this fall. You're going to be speaking at a conference. Uh, talk about that. How did that come about, and, and what do you think about all that? Sure, sure. Yes, um, I was, I, I've been greatly privileged to be invited to speak at the Desiring God National Conference this September, uh, this September 2009, uh, to speak at, uh, this is John Piper's conference uh, there up in Minneapolis. It's, it's been a wonderful opportunity for, for me to think about how God can use me uh, to be a blessing uh, to many evangelicals in, in, in America. And and uh, this particular year, because it is the 500-year anniversary of Calvin's birth, uh, the topic is on Calvin, and, and I've been given the opportunity to give the first lecture, which is kind of setting the scene. You know, who is Calvin and why is he important? Not just for me as a Christian, not just for me as a professor, but as a Korean-American Christian and a professor. Hmm. Calvinism has made a tremendous impact upon Protestant Christianity in Korea. Uh, as you may know, Scott, the earliest missionaries that came to Korea, whether Presbyterian or Methodist, many of them were Calvinist. And so to this day, the largest number of Protestant Christians in Korea are either Calvinist Presbyterians or Calvinist Methodists. Hmm. And so Calvin had a tremendous impact upon Korean Christianity, upon my father and his understanding of grace and sovereignty. And, and that, uh, that in turn had a tremendous impact on me as a young Christian in a covenant home. And then, of course, now as a professor and Christian here. And uh, so I'm very thankful for this opportunity to be a part of that conference. As you're preparing for, these, uh, for this lecture, what is it you, you think, if there's one thing that you're learning as you're getting ready to, you know, writing this material, getting ready to give this lecture, what are you learning from Calvin? Oh, that's, that's tough to say because I'm learning so much. And I'm actually rereading the Institutes, for example. Uh, I've not read the Institutes in its totality since seminary. So, uh, and, I'm, and, and again... As a faithful uh, lecturer who has one hour to tell everybody all about Calvin, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to pick up big themes, of course, and, and many of us know the big themes of Calvin. But one thing that I've been, I've been struck by as I've been thinking and reading Calvin, thinking about Calvin and reading about Calvin is, you know, I think Calvin would be quite disturbed about all this attention brought upon himself. Because I think at the end of the day, Calvin was a man who was gripped by biblical Christianity. He was gripped by the Bible and what all that the Bible said. And I think the more and more I think about what Calvin would say if he were here today is don't focus on me, but think about the God of the Bible, 
Go back to the Bible. Go back to what the Bible teaches about the, the God who gave us his son in all of his, in the fullness of time so that we might become like him and, 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 and then do church and, and ministry according to the Bible. Hmm. I, I think it's going back to the Bible is a, is a tremendous theme that I've, I, I've, I've discovered in, in my rereading of Calvin. And so hopefully that's something that I'll be able to share. Now, as I share about the Bible, of course, there are some major themes of the Bible hmm. that I think Calvin picks up. Of course, the sovereignty of God, the importance of grace, the centrality of Christ, the, the, you know, the centrality of the church, etc. cetera. So, uh, but I think I'm struck by his being gripped by biblical Christianity. Well, that's a good note with which to end uh, this episode. Thank you, Julius, for your time, and, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, hearing this lecture and, and uh, to seeing the other things that are forthcoming. Well, that's it for this edition of Office Hours. We'll be back next time for another episode. You can listen to Office Hours online or subscribe and download it to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to wscal.edu and click on Westminster Audio. For more information about this message, or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California, all rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format provided that you do not alter the wording in any way or that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.